Hello, this is Carla O'Dell. I'm chairman of the board of APQC. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC podcasts on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Ed Hoffman, who is the former and first chief knowledge officer at NASA. Ed's here to talk about his new book, The Smart Mission, NASA's Lessons for Managing Knowledge, People, and Projects. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. It's uh, wonderful to see you again, Carla. It's been a while and uh, always good to talk with you. The feeling's mutual. So this is an exciting book because it crosses so many domains. And you know my point of view about creativity and innovation and discovery. It's when the edges meet and overlap. So let's jump right into it. First of all, what inspired you to write The Smart Mission? Yeah, well, you've known me for a while since I spoke many, many times at APQC when we were starting up the knowledge program at NASA, I like to talk and I like to exchange with people. Writing for me is very solitary, so I don't like it as much. But the answer to that question is, I loved my career at NASA. And uh, whenever I'm around people, I tell NASA stories and they can see what I appreciated about it. And I felt that one of the things that I had not done before is to share a sense of what makes an organization special. Mm -hmm. And the ingredients that go into that, which cuts across many different areas. It's about the mission. It's about knowledge and finding it. It's about creating a culture of learning. And so I felt, one, uh, I really wanted to, I guess, write a love letter to NASA, how much I appreciated it and the people and what it's about. But also, I felt that it's important to share what makes a place special. It doesn't just happen uh, by having a good mission. At NASA, we used to say, people come for the mission but they stay for the people. So I think those were the the lessons that I wanted to create and share. I've heard a lot of people say, well, yeah, of course it it's NASA, but NASA did a lot of things smart around the many different factors that made the organization successful and sustained it over many, many decades. I think you really hit on something important that it may look like magic and natural, you know, people come for the mission, but it takes a lot of orchestration to have that happen. How do you see the knowledge needs differing between micro, macro, and global projects? And I guess you better start by describing what those three kinds of projects are for our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah. It's different if you're working a small project where you have control, you have the resources, and you don't have a lot of organizational uh, stakeholders to deal with than if you're dealing with a global mission. So a micro mission we describe as a situation where it's typically a small team. Uh, It's usually based on the technical expertise of people coming together, and they have the resources. They have the agreement of what they're doing. They don't need to work a lot of organizational politics to move forward. The example that we use in the story, and it's one I love, is of the VITAL project. And VITAL stood for Ventilator Intervention Technology uh, Mission. And it was at the early stages of COVID. We had a shortage of ventilators. And so there was a team, really talented folks from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who came together to basically develop ventilators uh, using materials that were common, that was easy to put it together fairly quickly, low cost, that could be used in healthcare in the battle for uh, dealing with COVID. It was a case where they had the resources, they knew what they were doing. They had a short timeline, a young team, a small team. And really what was most essential was the technical expertise. A macro mission is like when I was starting up the chief knowledge office, 
for NASA. There's a lot of relationships. It's required that you work across the system. You have to get support from legal. You have to make sure you have the financial community happy. Information technology is a key part of things. And so a macro mission, not only is the technical performance is important, but the organizational capability to work with many different people from different backgrounds becomes important. Then the third one that is increasingly common is global uh, projects. Global still has the requirement for technical capability. You also have the organizational sophistication to work politically across a unit. But now it adds the added dimension of working the cultural factors with different cultures, people with different backgrounds, uh, different uh, norms, uh, different languages. And the example of that, we have a whole chapter on the International Space Station. So it, it comes down to knowledge, knowledge that's technically discipline-specific, knowledge that's social, but also knowledge that's political and, you know, depending on what you're working on. And cultural, too. Yeah. yeah major. Yeah. Were there any anecdotes that you can remember about either the macro or things like the space station, the global projects? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you one small example. One of the things that I started at NASA was an international project and knowledge management community. Project from the standpoint of learning to have expertise in projects and knowledge, uh, frankly, because we were starting up the knowledge initiative, other organizations in Europe were doing it. So let's let's share what we're doing. And when I got the initial community together, it was at a joint event uh, at NASA. It was a conference event. We had guests from uh, Europe, from Italy, from France, from Germany. We had uh, colleagues from South Korea, from Japan, from India. And uh, I pitched the idea of why don't we come together and talk about how do we learn? How do we share knowledge? Um, how do we work more effectively? We have the same issues. How can we learn from each other? And I happen to use the word, we're going to do this. If we do it, we have to do it in a spirit of respect and uh, inclusion. And it got accepted really quickly. And it led to some work that's still being done, learning together, sharing together, training together. When I saw the head of the European Space Agency's international uh, organization a year after we started this up, you know, he smiled at me. He said, this has been going well. He said, when we first had this meeting, I was skeptical. But you said something that really uh, captured my attention. So it was that he said, we're going to work together across all countries as partners from the standpoint of respect and inclusion. And he said, honestly, we've never heard that from an American before or someone from NASA. Typically, it's who's got control of what and we're in charge and all this. And he said he wanted to see how that played. And he said, that's how we do work together. I give that as a, a, as a small example of the importance of talking about, but committing to respect, collaboration, inclusion is very important. A second quick example to illustrate that is I was going out to South Korea. Uh, they have the KARI, the Korean uh, Research Agency that does work for their space program. Good people. And I was going out there to meet with them. And I had a uh, friend, Jim Zimmerman, who for many years was the senior leader in the International Relations Organization. And he said, stop off in Tokyo. And I thought he was talking about socially. I said, Jim, I'm only going to be there for a couple of days. I'm going to stop off. He says, stop off in the morning in Tokyo and meet with the head of the Japanese you know, program. And we talked about it. I said, I'm only going to have an afternoon. It's going to be crazy on my schedule. He said, it'll pay benefits. So I went there. 
And I saw the head of engineering, which was the part leading the uh, knowledge community. And when I sat down with him, he had been someone who had worked, very esteemed person globally, had worked the International Space Station on the Japanese side. And he looked, he said, you just stopped off in Tokyo to meet with me? I said, yes. He said, that's, that's very impressive. He said, that's, that does mean a lot to me. He said, why are you doing this? I said, well, you know, we, everyone knows about you, respect you. And it's very important to have the Japanese community a part of this. And so I want to just stop by and see you and, and thank you for your support. And he turned to his colleagues in the room. He said, I appreciate you doing this. And he said, this is, again, different than what we've sometimes experienced in the past from NASA. But, you know, we're going to support this initiative. And I appreciate your, your respect for me, but, but also for us. So again, I at, at the time, I wasn't going to make that stop because it's another trip. It's exhausting and all that kind of stuff, but it made a total difference. We had very strong support from JAXA, the Japanese exploration agency for, you know, for the rest of the time. So it's the human touch. It's the connection. It's the importance of appreciating people. And, and that's how knowledge flows if, if people have trust and respect. Absolutely. That's a wonderful story. So that's on a global project scale. Yeah. Does the same kind of process translate when you're talking about, well, micro, I think too also, but the macro projects, how do you fertilize that human element? So as I mentioned, I moved to a new location, the Eastern shore of Maryland. And one of the things that has really impressed me is, is really made me feel good about the places when we've gotten people to come and work on our, our home. And one of the first people I met was an individual who's got a lot of years of experience, but he basically said, I'm going to guarantee that you're going to love what we do for you. And we have conversations we talk, and he did a phenomenal job. Well, then I, I needed a plumber and he recommended a plumber. And again, he, that network connected to another person who, uh, came in on time, what was his word, indicated what he was going to do, communicated that, and again, had that same sense of expertise coupled with relational skills. And the final small business example is I, uh, I have my man cave, Carla, which is the place that I go to watch big screen movies and sports and things like that. And I wanted to set it up really good screen TV. And I got these two uh, young guys who you can see that they love movies. And I was hearing the two guys work while I was uh, sitting in the office and I was hearing their, their love and telling each other stories about the work they're doing and how it plays. So what I noticed in small businesses, again, a lot of it is the technical expertise. It's the knowledge and whether it gets shared and shared in a way that you appreciate the people from the standpoint of collaboration, right? And uh, exchange of ideas and conversation. I think that having something in common, whether it's the mission or the love of the technology or the love of problem solving, That's right. um, if you, you start with that, but if it's not accompanied with deep appreciation of the other person and what they bring to the party, of whatever their level of expertise or experience is, is essential to building a team that if it's any sort of project that's difficult, it's going to encounter problems. And you need yes. people who find that exciting when it happens, that they, right. are, yeah. they trust each other and they can solve them together. So have you got any techniques you would recommend to our listeners for 
creating that kind of appreciation among people besides working together, of course. Yeah, no, many. Sometimes people don't come to that relationship with those skill sets. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things is a word you just used that I found more and more important, which is appreciation. Most of us are in situations that we appreciate, we have gratitude for, but we don't think about it. We don't talk about it. We want more. And so one of the things that I started doing at NASA, because I would hear people complain about stuff about their manager or or the president or Congress or all these other things. And I said, you know, you work at NASA. Are you happy working at NASA? And people would start, yeah, we love it. I, I said, we got to focus on the things we can control. And part of it that I would start doing is saying, let's talk about two or three things that we are grateful for in what we do, but also in our personal life. And so that's something I've started to bring to projects. Take 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most, and let's just individually think about what we're grateful for at this moment. Let's share it. So that's one of the things that I'd hit on. I think the second thing after gratitude appreciation is be clear on the mission. You know, you're working at APQC. You have an excitement, Carla. The people who work with you have an excitement. It's easy to forget about that in the day-to-day reality and the challenges we have. So talk about what is the mission? What's the purpose we have? Why is it important for many other people? And then connect that locally to the goals. And I would ask people to, what are the goals? What are the two or three goals that you have that contributes to that larger uh, mission that is taking place? So there's many uh, tips and frankly, throughout the book, every chapter touches on different things. But I think maybe those are the top couple of things that I would start with mission and, and gratitude. Those are beautiful. And they're also accessible. I think people, you know, who don't consider themselves facilitators can use those two things. What a tone it creates at the beginning yeah. of a team or mission to talk about. Are yeah, absolutely. Different- I, yeah, I mean, we, we should, you know, we're... Uh, yeah. You know, people are frustrated these days with the country and the state of things. But, you know, we're we're lucky. I mean, we, we innovate, we develop, we have, you know, good growth. We have good lives. We, we basically have safety. You look at uh, what other people deal with and they don't totally understand. The, it's, it's a dangerous cycle once you start noticing the problems. Uh, and that's yeah. all you notice leads yes. into a dangerous path. So, yes, it's a downward spiral because there's yes. always problems. But knowledge management thrives on problems. So, for example, what other techniques have you used to help knowledge flow in kind of a federated environment, whether that's something global like NASA or even in other kinds of smaller organizations? Probably what I've emphasized more than anything. I I never thought that I was a technically brilliant, know-it-all-the-answers kind of guy, but I was able to attract around me really wonderful people, smart people, and give them the room. And I think partly that goes into the ability to be comfortable creating an emotional place where people are appreciated and they appreciate others uh, in terms of working together. I think of the, uh, the study that Google did, which I think they called Project Aristotle. What people usually remember about that is that if you have more women uh, on the team, it tends to be more productive. What they were hitting up on was the fact that in a team or in a project where you can talk safely, right? Psychological safety, we, we talk about where there's a good emotional, there's a positive presence for what we're trying to take on board. Those positive emotional cues allow us to work as humans more effectively together. I think that's one of the things. A second thing that I've really 
found to be a real big supporter of going back to the start of the academy. And I probably got this from our joint friend, Larry Pruzak, who always talked about spaces. Mm. And when I would work with Larry and talk about space, I would joke with him of, yeah, of course, it's NASA, it's space. But the best relationships, I think, couples, teams, organizations, societies, they're comfortable finding places to go where you can talk comfortably, right? Yeah. And uh, sitting around maybe a circle or having a conversation like this that people can listen to and have a podcast. I remember uh, one of the program organizations I was looking at was Siemens, probably about 10 years ago. And when they built their headquarters in Munich, the CEO of Siemens said he wanted to replicate what he called serendipitous encounters. Serendipitous. In other words, he wanted the people to walk around the campus and run into each other. Uh, flowing waters and gardens and places to eat. You know, uh, in Japan, they'll have tea rooms, right? And the whole purpose is to create a place, a space where we're normal, we're comfortable, the blood pressure is low, and we take time to talk to each other. Uh, that is something I will tell you that NASA did brilliantly at different levels of a career. I felt nurtured from the time I started at NASA to the time I left that you can talk to people. And uh, they kind of got that important. So I think uh, this notion of creating spaces for conversation, for sharing, for knowledge is another way of kind of creating this, this flow of important knowledge in a federated, uh, distributed environment. Yeah, the orchestrated serendipity that the Siemens head was talking about needs those spaces. So that leads me to another question, Ed. In the era in which we live, I was almost called it post-COVID, but I guess we don't get to say that yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, there's a, so much remote work that our, our use of spaces has changed dramatically. And now some of these spaces are the way you and I are talking now, which are digital yeah. spaces. What If I were a project manager or somebody leading a team, what would I be able to do to create that kind of space in this world? Yeah, this may be old school, but I still, I believe it. I think humans, we need to come together uh, once every six months. There has to be a time frame. I think, where you see other people and talk to them. I'm a big believer. I teach at Columbia University. It's a distance program, but at the very beginning, before any courses have taken place, there's a residency for three days where people from around the country, around the world will come together as students and we'll meet with them. They think the most important time is the sessions that we're teaching, you know, the different topics on the history of knowledge or where do you find knowledge, right? It's an information and knowledge program. Really the most important thing I tell them happens at lunch and dinner. When you're sitting around with these new people you're going to be studying with, where you sit around with the faculty and you find out the faculty aren't people to fear. They're good people. They're comfortable. You laugh, you eat, you drink, you share, and you create this connection together. And then for the next number of months, you could work at a distance and you have a sense of who you're dealing with. So I probably got that for NASA in a NASA project. There's travel money to get together, to meet, and to, to talk. So I think the remote possibility should be a technology, a tool that helps us because we can do more things together and the technology is wonderful and AI, I think, will be wonderful. And as long as we know that we're humans and so don't eliminate the human reality is that we need to have some time where we talk, where we laugh, where we eat, where we look into each other's eyes and we build up that trust so that then we can work more efficiently uh, at a distance. I couldn't agree with you more. I see that even happening with families 
who've been separated except by Zoom for yeah. over two years. And it's not the same as when you come together and live together for a couple of days. That's right. You know? And man, you, you just learn so much more and the deepen the appreciation and that carries over. It's almost like ripples, you know, it will go out for several months and then it's time to throw another stone in that water and get us all together again. Tell me something else that you really found important and exciting in writing this book. And you said, wow, I, I think I better share this about NASA or about projects or people. Yeah, good thing and a little disappointing thing. The good thing, I guess, is, uh, as you know, I'm a big believer in story. You know, when you're talking about data analytics, which is vital when you're talking about automation for productivity, it's important when you talk about knowledge and learning, people get it. Still, when you talk about the importance and the power of story, I don't think we teach in school. And so it's something you learn as an adult and appreciate And one of the things in interviewing uh, people from different companies, we talk in our stories, we give our examples for how things uh, take place. And to me, the power of story is more and more important. I think a lot of the major changes at NASA happened because of stories, stories of success and stories of failure that led us to the notion of we need to, to go in a different direction. Story has the ability to provide a fuel for motivating I think it creates a connection with each other. And I also think it provides a learning that you can only get when you're, you're actually doing it. So we ended up devoting a whole chapter on story. Originally, we were going to call it communications. When the editor read it, she said, no, it's really everything here is around the stories. And so, so that was one of the things in talking to people, the people who've read advances of the book, they like the stories. So I think we need to incorporate that in terms of the central importance of teams, of leadership, of projects, of knowledge, and and how that takes place. The other thing is, I guess, on the for me, it's personally a little bit more depressing. Is one of the the next to last chapter is on global collaboration. I spent a large part of my career during the International Space Station era, which was a time where you have the United States and NASA working with Russia working with Italy and Japan and all these different countries. And the space station is marvelous. It should have won, in my view, a Nobel Prize for peace to get 19 different countries from around the world to collaborate, to to create this workplace and this home environment in space. And so I thought that that was going to be the future. I thought by now we'd be working with China. I, I thought you'd see many of these countries coming together to collaborate. And obviously, recent events geopolitically, it's not really going in that direction. So I guess what I learned from that, it requires constant work and effort to keep uh, keep these good things going. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And it's a delight to see you again. And before we go, I want to remind our listeners that Ed's book, The Smart Mission, again, comes out on August 16th. And there's a link to pre-order or purchase it in the description. And once again, I am Carla O'Dell. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. And please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.